Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And there are people who are onliners. I know people who left their community, went to another community, that burnt down, went to another community. Now they're solely onliners. That's what they are. Their whole life is online. And they bring that cynicism and that negativity with them. The ancient Greeks had a name for those who wanted to live a solitary life. An idiot. But this is what most of us that live in urban megacities have become. Atomistic creatures seeking pleasure from our own company and the screens that occupy the dead space between our busy work schedules. I have often tried to conceptualise the need for community and whether it's hardwired within the human psyche to be around the familiar for extended periods and whether the dislocation that comes with modernity harms our mental and spiritual well-being. I'm Muhammad Jalal, your host, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Today I invite back onto the show Dr. Shadi Al-Masri, Imam and community leader who has worked tirelessly at the local level to develop strong communities premised upon an Islamic framework. I asked Dr. Shadi to spell out the importance of communities in Islam and how the modern maladies that come from individualism can be remedied by our deen and our community. All right, so uh, anyway, I'm up and running. <laughs> you heard about our soup kitchen? I did actually. I, I there was a tweet I think yesterday. Yeah. Right? Like, so yeah, alhamdulillah, we have a we have a soup kitchen now, and it's it's going really good. It's going really well. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. And so that that is for what Muslims, non-Muslims? No, the, no, a, anybody. 
anybody yeah. in need and, and it really our community is so big right yes and so wealthy yes that um our community is so wealthy that i felt like we really have to do this i mean it's just no excuse not to do it yeah. and we started by just giving out money food right friday nights and then um uh it, we came up with that we got to get a permanent space and it just and it happened come to yeah. So it's up yeah. and running now. Have you are you catering for for people on a daily basis, a weekly? We're, we're our first goal for twenty twenty two is once a week. Okay. And then we're gonna once we get employment full timers, it's oh. gonna be more than that. Inshallah. Great. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we can you know as we as we talk today, maybe again it's it's all linked, isn't it, to the sense of community and what the community it does is. and it its is. outreach activities. So I would like to. Yeah. In fact, at some stage, I would like to explore what you do uh, to build that sense of community. So certainly we can we can talk about that. Um, so, Khair, inshallah, I think we can, if it's okay with you, let's begin. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Shadi Al-Masri, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, and it's always good to be back. Thanks for having Fantastic. me. Jazakallah khair. Really, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to have you here once again. And Dr. Shadi, actually, I would like to start by... By, by talking about myself, I mean, I'm, I'm a little worried about uh, myself and the way I've conceptualized my Islamic practice mm-hmm. uh, so far. So, you know, I've, I've moved around from place to place, from city to city in the UK, and, and now I've moved from, from the UK to, to another country. And, and those connections I made, especially those early connections, I've sort of lost somewhere down the road. Uh, this coupled with, I suppose, a hectic... Uh, time schedule of, of normal work in the West and probably around the world has meant that, you know, that that sense of community that I know my parents have, have has evaded me uh, since I was a kid, probably. Um, now, I, want, I really want to understand what Islam has to say about community and whether there is something, I don't know, intrinsic in, to our practice that living in a community makes uh, it, it makes it essential, uh, if, if that makes any sense. Um, I also want to uh, take a look at how modernity impacts the way we conceptualize communities today and and, and the sense of collective spirit. Uh, but also I want to look at the other side. I mean, there are lots of Muslims I interact with who've had it, had are fed up of communities. They, they feel that uh, the Muslim community or their traditional communities stifle uh, their sense of selves and, and have an impact on the way they practice their religion. So it, there is a negative side that I want to focus on as well. So I suppose there's a lot going on in my in my head today. And I, I think you're the person to speak to about uh, about how we should imagine communities in, in today's pretty hectic modern world. But let's start with modernity. Is modernity killing the Muslim community? Oh, bismillah rahman rahim I think it's definitely uh, modernity. First of all, we conceptualize it. It's a global matter. And the Muslims have not really put up uh, much of a, a national resistance. And national, I mean, by uh, at the government and the country level, there is no alternative. It's come in. Uh, it's affected every single Muslim country, except for, you know, those probably that... Uh, are yet to have any natural resources for uh, modern uh, corporations to go in there and, and bring their, their whole system with them. But 
we live now in a, in a world where we all can share the same experiences. That's, that's one positive, even if they're um, largely or partly negative uh, experiences, but we all share these experiences so we can talk about them. I think that the individuals with Islam can resist a lot of these ailments, but they need that community. And if we're talking about the destruction of community, and it may be, I would say it's not so much a destruction of community, but as a distraction from community. And it is sort of a destruction because the cities have pulled people in, right? Uh, ever since the Industrial Revolution. And so people are moving from their local communities and living these local lives, which seems like it's lame. They do seem like they're lame, right? But uh, in comparison to the big city. But internally, I think they're far more wholesome and give people far greater feeling of um, connectedness, meaning, relationships, etc., than um, than the cities do. And I actually like the middle, right? Uh, There is the country, the rural area, and then there's urban areas. And that's how it started, rural uh, and urban. And then you had these... Uh, the, the factories made these urban centers, these mega centers of filled with strangers, right? And then there's something in the middle that's really the sweet spot where it's not rural. It's not, you know, a country, you're not a country bumpkin, but there's enough going on. But there, it, you do know, let's say 50% of the people, right? And so I think that living life as a Muslim, likewise, living life as, you know, some of these these evangelical churches, they get together all the time, right? They're always together. Uh, probably the same with Orthodox Jews, but they have a little bit different uh, uh, levels of connection, in my opinion. But the, the idea is that uh, we can navigate this thing, but it's going to take consistency and it's going to take a masjid life that people enjoy and it's going to take a certain number of population, an amount of population that is neither too small nor too big. If you get caught in the, edge, in the edges, you're going to be frustrated. You mentioned some people frustrated with community. Yeah, that's probably because your community is too small. Okay? There's no option. And then you have, which I lived in London. I lived in New York City. Not, I, I didn't live in New York City. I worked in New York City. I was part of that Islamic community. And likewise, that's sort of frustrating. It's everyone's a f- go by, flying by. Everyone's just coming and going, coming and going. There's no real sense of stability there. I think uh, London Zone 4, you start getting uh, communities, right? So I think, though, that Muslims can, if they put their mind to it, and if they have the, the hadh, I, ha, the word hadh is something that Allah gives you that you didn't do anything for. That's usually how it's termed. Uh, the sense of to be able to live in a certain spot for 10, 20, 30 years. That's really what it takes. If you keep moving around, you erase all that work. And you got to start your relationships from new. And then you start getting cynical. Well, I mean, if I went 25 years and left that, then I might go 25 years and leave them. Like this new community. So you start getting cynical. And the cynics, when they go online, they spread their cynicism. They spread their negativity. When they become like onliners, and there are people who are onliners. I know people who left their community, went to another community, that burnt down went to another community. Now they're solely onliners. That's what they are, right? 
their whole life is online and they bring that cynicism and that negativity with them. You talk about online communities. Of course, uh, we are going to talk about young people later on. But as you mention it, uh, what's wrong with uh, establishing these broad networks of communities? Of course, there are lots of benefits in, in knowing Muslims across racial and nationalistic lines. And, and that sometimes broadens the mind and, and gives you you know, a, a broader sense of what it means to be part of this ummah. I love the on, on idea of connecting with online, but it's got to be, must, must, must be secondary. It cannot be the primary. So that's the difference. It's like there are levels of our connections. There are levels of community. And this thing cannot be the primary, right? And if it is, it's sort of a shame, but maybe for some people it has to be. And that's the truth. I mean, you, you just transplanted, right? So you have no choice. So the online, but we do have the ability to start forging something new. And I'm the type of person, subhanAllah, it would take me a lot to really um, feel that someone's part of my life. It would take a lot. It may be a de- more than a decade or more, right? So, I mean, everyone's different because I would feel otherwise it's superficial. It's fake. We've we, we known each other for three years and now we're like, what is this, right? So where we came from as, as a son of immigrants and our community of immigrants and us being the second generation, we were actually pretty lucky because we grew up and our families came together a lot and off, often uh, and, and intimately because there was no one else. So we grew up and that's our, that is, they are our family. Those, those kids and those, uh, that's our family. Even if, if, if for my parents, it was artificial, they sort of made it happen, right? Because they had no choice. And they didn't know these people until they were like 40 years old. So for them, it may have been, but for me and our generation, this was, this is us, right? That's our life. And now we're moving into decade number two, decade number three, and we know the same people, right? And now I know their kids and they know my kids. That's what a sense of community really is ideal, uh, ideally is is 20, 30, 40 years. And I was talking to one of my friends. I said, man, how many people did we bury? Like we've been to so many funerals together. We've been to weddings together. We've been to funerals together. And that's what a community is because you bond with people through experiences over a long period of time. I mean, is that not an antiquated view of what uh, today's communities look like? I mean, we move around. We live in a globalized world. We uh, we end up in in different cities. We move around for work. Um, you know, communities are, are separated by by all sorts of yep. of of practical reasons. I mean, I, I I understand, for example, in the states, just the sheer expanse of the land separates people, and and so that that sense of daily connection is lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at best, you may meet each other at Juma time, at uh, or or in on the weekends. You know, families meet up, but. That, that natural daily connection is severed. And so h- how realistic it is, is it in today's world that people can live in these? Because w- what you paint there of, of the type of community where you live 30, 40 years with each other and you bury one another and you visit each other, you know, I wonder how much, especially for us in the West, can realize uh, that sense of community makeup. Well, definitely for sure, there are times where you come and go. Right. So yeah. where I live in, New, in the state of New Jersey, in the area of central Jersey, it's uh, even North Jersey. It's one of those areas where it's blessed. It has everything that you possibly need. It has a lot of industries. 
like the entire pharmaceutical industry is just down is down the street. All the big names are here. Johnson and Johnson is uh, on one side of town and then Merck and all these other pharmaceuticals that you hear about. They're all on one strip. And we have tons of computers with New York City's right there. We have colleges. We have Ivy League schools. We have airports. We have everything. So it's one of those places that people tend to gravitate back to, even if, as you said, yes, they were parted by gaps of time, but they end up, you know, gravitating back. Chicago is very similar to that. Uh, the, I don't know, I think Dallas is probably very similar to that. Although most of the community there is now art, artificial and that's that they're transplants. But yes, it is antiquated, but that doesn't mean human nature changed. In my opinion, on this subject, human nature is pretty much will always have a similar uh, you know, feature in it, which is that we are comfortable with the familiar. I'm going to be very comfortable. You know, I feel so stable with the idea that there are, I can list you 10 guys from my childhood who are now you know, up and living similar to how I'm living in the same place with the same dean, same Abada, same beliefs and same, you know, direction in life, it gives you a sense of stability, right? And I don't think anybody can deny that human beings, when they have a node or a thing that existed in their youth, and then you notice it still exists 30 years later, it gives you an anchor, it gives you a sense of stability. And that could be people, or the, the greatest thing is people. These people have been in my life for 30, 40 years, right? So it gives you a stability. So I think human nature is like that. And I don't think about that part of it will ever change from us. But is, is that the way we live normally? Probably maybe 50% of the world doesn't live like that, you know, and then you're going to have to adjust. Okay. So you've talked about the, the, the sort of the practical re- requirement uh, of living with a community. You've talked about human nature and why we tend to want to live with the familiar and, and see the familiar around us. And, and that's how human beings have lived for for, for forever, um, but what about the the sense of Sharia, the, pra- the the practice of Islam? What is it about Islam that makes the community almost intrinsic to the practice of Islam, or, or is there a, you know, is there a sense? I mean, I'm I'm thinking back to, you know, I've I've got a very limited appreciation of Islamic scholarly works, but from my reading, uh, there isn't an, an active discussion about community. Or at least I can't see that in. Islamic text. I mean, there are rules. You know, you follow the Sharia. You uh, you have to uh, 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 stay away from the Haram. You have to uh, do the obligation. Where does the community fit mm-hmm. within the schema of of trying your best to gain uh, to gain Jannah by uh, by following Allah's commands? All right, that's a great question. And and the way that community is interwoven in the Muslim's life, to me, it's brilliant. Well, the first thing is your first community is your family, if you think about it. Right. So the rules on or the guidance and the commandments on honoring your parents. Well, when you attach yourself to your parents, you naturally attach yourself to your siblings. Right. You naturally attach yourself to your grandparents. Hmm. OK. And so and that's going to attach you to your cousin. So you will have a sense of family. That's the first thing that the Quran, it's like insists upon. All right, that you have to be you have to have ihsan towards your parents. So, and, but that's going to be a doorway to so many other people. But Allah is insisting on on one relationship, 
but that relationship is going to open doors to so many others, right? And it's going to force connections that you wouldn't have otherwise, you know, uh, forged. Second thing is that the word jama'a is actually, if you look at it, it's not always just the uh, people that are in your community today. The word jama'a in, in Islamic scholarship and in, uh, in many references uh, in, implies the understanding, the true understanding of Islam through that jama'a being the scholars. So that you're not just linked to people today. You're also linked to people, uh, to, to scholarship, to the ummah of hundreds of years ago through scholarship. And that's why we have to, when we say it's obligatory, when the scholars say it's obligatory to follow the jama'a and these ahadith, it's not just, it is not your people today. It is the jama'a is the consensus understanding of Islam over history. So that links us to what we now have as, or what we've had for over a millennium of the four methods. That's like the jama'a or the creeds, the aqidas of the Muslims, right? Uh, that is, that's the jama'a. So that's a historical thing. Now, that's so important because if we all do that, then wherever I go in the world, okay, I can ask, is this, are they on the jama'a, on the on Ahl-Sunnah jama'a? Are they like Hanafis or whatever? What's going on here? So I know what religion is being practiced or what the nature of the religion is being practiced. So that's the second element, right? The idea of linking ourselves intellectually through to a jama'a that's historical. Thirdly, the practically, practically we are made or highly, highly recommended in some cases or forced in other cases to engage in a jama'a. If you look at all of our rituals, Salah, we know has Jummah. We know that that's obligatory, but then the recommended is to pray in the masjid. We know that fasting uh, the month of Ramadan, you're going to fast. The timing of your fast will be with the Jummah. You're going to just fast when you want to. When you see the moon, no, you're going to fast whether either you're in an Islamic country or the Qadi, the government tells you when to fast. So you follow that Jummah. Okay. Or, and then you have the recommendation, highly recommended to pray Tarawih in the masjid. Okay, then you have, it's actually equally recommended to do it in your house, virtuous, I mean, I'm sorry, it's a virtuous to do it in your house, but we all do it in the masjid, right? And then you look at zakah, where am I going to give my money to, right? I got to be connected to people, right? At least an organization, take my zakah. Let's go to hajj, that's a whole ummah connection, okay? Let's go to marriage. Well, first, how am I going to get a wife? I don't know people, right? When I get married, there have to be witnesses, got to be public. Down a lot, down the line, you you go to you die, have inherit your you 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 attend the janazah, okay? Or someone dies, you attend the janazah. It's highly recommended. Your meats, where are you going to get your halal meat from? We don't have time to go slaughter ourselves. We got to ask, where is the halal meat? Halal meat's not going to come from nowhere. It's, there's going to be a butcher somewhere. There's got to be a Muslim. I got to ask. I got to know reputations of people, right? Every chapter of our Ibadat and Mu'amalat will at some point make us or highly recommend us or implicitly force us to be connected to physical human beings that walk on the earth, not online human beings, or as I said earlier, intellectually, the intellectual jama'ah. So the intellectual jama'ah, I can be part of the intellectual jama'ah. In other words, the jama'ah of guidance without ever meeting anybody. I say, okay, khalas, I'm upon everything Imam al-Nawi is upon or everything Imam al-Shafi'i is upon, right? I'm, a, I'm with the jama'ah of Muslims. I have not broken from the jama'ah in terms of guidance. 
now in application, all right, I can't avoid people either. I have to, at some point, be connected to the human beings who live right now in my life. So you see how Islam connects you historically and it connects you literally, right? The here and now. Jummah is here and now. Janazah is here and now. Zakat is here and now. Right? Ramadan is here and now. Hajj is here and now. So I think that our religion, if it's practiced properly, it becomes almost impossible not to have a lot of friends. Because we're also given adab on how to act with people. Like we're given etiquettes. We're taught etiquettes in our religion of how to be with people. I don't know if any other religion has this, right? Maybe Judaism. But uh, how to be with people in a way that if you follow these rules and these guidelines, you're going to have a lot of friends. You're going to have so many friends. What you're going to be worried about is how can I ever get solitude again, right? That's how many friends a person will have. That's interesting. What if, uh, I mean, I know people like this, and maybe I was like this once upon a time. What if you, you, you recognize these obligations, you recognize these collective duties and even these recommendations that you have uh, that, that implore you to mix with the community, but you, uh, you decide, I mean, in, in, with modern technology, you can pay your zakah online, you can uh, pray your salah at home and not be and be free from sin as long as you go to this, uh, the mosque, the masjid for, for salat al-jummah. Uh, but even then, you can, you can, there is a way of praying salat al-jummah where you mix with the congregation. You come early and you do all of the recommendations. And there's a way where you can just bring your prayer mat and pray outside and, and leave as quickly as possible. And Ramadan is, is very similar. You know, mm-hmm. one can pay your zakat uh, with, with a click of a button now using, using bank... Uh, transfer. I, I, I'm being a little flippant here, but what if a person uh, minimized their their connections with the community, yet still kept within the line of yep. of acceptable Islamic practice? Yeah. Would you still argue there is a deficiency in this person's uh, practice of Islam? I would say that Allah is merciful, and He's taken. He knows the circumstances human beings will be in. Sometimes people need to unplug. Right. Yet, yet the unplugging that Allah is accepting has a limited. It's what you just said. So, I mean, I could go to Siberia because I need to just, it could happen. I can, a person could have such a traumatic experience in life that they need to be totally alone to be cured and healed. So I can go to Siberia. I can show up to the local mosque, put my head down, pray Juma and leave without talking to a single soul, pray Tarawih every night there and leave without talking to a single soul pay zakat online. I might not have parents that I have to keep tabs with. I'm not really obligated to keep tabs with anybody else. Right. Uh, and I could live, I could, you can go to hedge and not talk to anybody. Right. Yes, right. So, the, but, but you, if what you notice is that Allah will not allow, he will not allow a, a, a complete isolation. And the old days you could do it in the olden days. I could go take a tent on my back and a stick and I could go out into the um, uh, a mountainous area and, and live in a cave and drink from the rivers and hunt a goat every once in a while and eat it. And then I could do that. I don't have to pray Juma, right? There's no mosque, right? Uh, I don't have any possessions, so I don't have to pay Zakah. So Hajj is not obligatory upon it because I have no money. You could do that. But in this, today's world, it's not going to happen. You know, nobody lives like nobody can physically live like that today, unless you're you live in a trailer somewhere. But point being is that even our isolation 
has a barrier to it. And I think that's very good for our mental health. And it's very good for us to keep the norms because when I hear a khutbah, I'm going to have, I'm going to be up to date with the news. Oh, this is happening in Kashmir. All right. At least I have a clue. So go to Hajj. You're going to see people. Point being is that Allah is merciful. He knows certain people need to be completely isolated as a way of healing. But is that what's recommended or is that an exception? I believe that's an exception. That's the exception. It's not the norm. So what about the concept of hijrah in Islam, migration? Now, we know that from the Hukm Shari'i, that sometimes it may even be obligatory to leave your community and to move to another community. Or uh, if it's not obligatory, uh, it's a general mubah. You you can move and, and you can move as many times as you want. Um, what about that that idea of of moving around? As you said at the very beginning, that somewhat dislocates you from others, mm-hmm. yet the the permissibility is there, if not the obligation is there. How do we tie these two sets of ideas? The idea that one needs to be plugged into a community as well as the the, the very strong Islamic concept that one can leave one's community. Yep. Uh, I think that we, 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 we make sense of it by understanding that there is a default, a norm, and there are exceptions to the norm. Every rule has its exceptions. And the default way of living is as the Prophet lived in, the city of Medina, with his Sahaba, in, with, in the masjid, and, and meeting people and eating dinner with them and traveling with them, etc., living with the community. That's the default. That's the norm. And that's what's best. However, there are exceptions to the rule. There are always exceptions to the rule. And that's the wisdom of Islamic uh, jurisprudence is that and in general, Allah's creation is expansive for every situation. And there are people who for spiritual reasons in the past and maybe in the present, them being strangers is the best thing for them. And so if you look at Ibrahim ibn Adham, he was with the jama'ah in the sense of his guidance, like what he believed in and the way he was worshiping Allah was, was in line with the jama'ah. That's the first jama'ah that I said, the jama'ah of guidance. The second jama'ah, he kept it as what you said, the bare minimum, just like Uwais al-Qarni. So as soon as he became known in a town, he left. Both Uwais al-Qarni and Ibrahim ibn Adam, they lived the same way. As soon as they became famous in a town or just known, they left. Why? It was better for their hearts in their specific situation to be complete strangers, right? And what Allah had willed for them was something that was unique to them. In other words, that their heart to be completely empty. There must be in the ummah some, some people whose hearts are completely empty from all connections other than Allah. And he was one of them at that time. And I'm sure every era has some of the people like that. And they just, they, they always live with the jama'at, but they keep it to that minimum that you said, to the point that nobody knows them. And as soon as you get to know them, next week they're gone. But that's not the norm. In, in yeah, your mind, exactly. that's not the norm. These are, the, the, you will always get that, but mm-hmm. the, the norm is to mix with others. Yeah. I, I want you to uh, paint a picture of uh, the... Uh, the time of Prophet ﷺ when he established the community in Medina. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from my reading, we know that uh, this was a transplanted community, right? You had the Mahajirin who came uh, to a community which was alien to them. And, and actually many of them were, were homesick straight away and, and they had, you know, a sense of 
uh, of yearning to go back to Mecca, where you know they had just been had had escaped, and uh, Medina's climate was very different. Its people also. I I heard that the the mentality and the sort of disposition of the people was different to that of of Mecca. There is a very different type of, and you're not used to that, even if it's perfectly acceptable to have different types of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sahaba who who migrated were not used to this type of of community makeup. Yes. Uh, what lessons can we learn from that first community? And how did the Prophet um, erect, I suppose, that, uh, that community and, and create some sense of harmony between the Muhajirin and the Ansar? The Muhajirin, as Allah has praised them in Surah Al-Hashr and many other places, they were the very special community because they were a rural uh, community. They were farmers, essentially, and there were not a lot of farmers in Arabia. And they were people who shared and they didn't compete. So that was the farmer culture. Whereas the, so their culture was built upon mukarama, upon generosity in their dealings. And the Meccans were traders. They were merchants. And the merchant life is based upon mushaha, which is competition and getting the best of what you can. Now, the scholars also break this down. For example, they say that business, tijara, is based upon competition. Marriage is a contract as well. Marriage is also a contract, but it's based upon mukarama. That's why when people talk about, what's my right as a husband? What's my duty as a wife? It's true, you have these, but it's not in the same way as if it would be a, a maid or an employee or a partner in a business because those you're just seeking for your benefit whereas marriage it's based upon generosity and when the muhajirin ansar yeah or sorry we, I, I meant to say the ansar yeah. the ansar i've been saying muhajirin i meant the ansar the ansar when they received the muhajirin they showed that generosity by giving when the prophet وسلم, linked each muhajir to an ansari and that ansari gave them half of his wealth if he had two homes, he gave him a home, gave him a home. That spirit of them being just givers in this sense is what made the Muhajirin and Ansar be able to live together peacefully. It's not easy to have in the uh, you know, 300 people, 70 men, and, and the rest were women and children to move into a, country, a, a town in the old days and absorb them like this without any tensions, but they did. And the Prophet built a market for the... Um, for the Muhajirin and the Ansar had their farms. But it goes to show us that trait, that, that geography trait alters your personality. It, it, it impacts, I should say your personality. The job that you take impacts your personality. No doubt about it. So there is geographic determinism. There is occupational determinism, right? Professional determinism. If I was to take a job, let's say in law enforcement, be a very different person, right? than I am today. If I was to take a job in IT, I'd be a very different person. I wouldn't have to talk so much, right? So my relationship would be different. I wouldn't have to deal with people in the same way. So every job, every occupation, it alters your personality to a degree. And that's really important to notice and to think about when, uh, as we develop and as we interact with people. Because they're, they're going to be, there are caretaking jobs, occupations. There are shark occupations there are occupations if your shark instinct is not sharpened you die 
right? Uh, so it's going to affect people. And that's how when we, when we analyze people, you got to think about these factors. And that's interesting. You know, the, the prophetic model uh, was, was one model. And you talked about how the Ansar and Mahajirin were brought together by the Prophet Ali Salaam and, and almost forced, but not coerced, but mm-hmm. were, were, were put together in order for, to build a, a sense of brotherhood between them. Uh, but in today's communities, when we mix with some Muslims, and, and maybe one can be too idealistic about about things, about matters, but we do find that, you know, and, and maybe ourselves included, that we are far away from the prophetic model. And when you mix with some Muslims, uh, you find that some observe their Islam diligently and are very, very, you know, uh, that they want to practice their Islam to the latter, and there are others who are probably more liberal in their interpretation of Islam, or at least uh, they've mixed uh, a host of traditions, or, or you know, are, are not so. They do not countenance sort of the, the 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 aspects of Islam that that strengthen your that wants that that give you that zeal to 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 attain Jannah. You, you get my point, I suppose. That yeah, we we live in communities with different types of people, and you know, mm-hmm. I I remember, uh, I I as part of my work, I I gave a lecture once, and and it was about it happened to be about liberalism, and a Muslim student approached me at the end and said, look, you know. I would rather not live in in communities because, um, you know, whenever I mix with my community, I find my Islamic practice, my Islamic, uh, you know, nafsiya, you know, declining as a result of of mixing with Muslims. So I would rather just practice my Islam separately. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, how would you respond to to that sort of very modern problem of of sort of very distorted communities when it comes to the Islamic perspective? Well, I have two opinions on that. Firstly, there are a lot of groups and, and communities that are that will depress a person. This communities this is not done right. It's not led well, right? At the same time, community requires some humility. The community is not there to do anything for you, to serve you. Uh, I just received a question yesterday. Someone said, well, how do I, well, I, I, every community I go to, I'm not satisfied with. It's because you're going with a consumer mentality as if they owe you something. There's no humility in your approach, right? Go there with not just humility, ikhlas. You're going for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not for the sake of anyone serving you, right? And this consumer mentality to me is uh, a problem. And people go into communities like that. If I don't, I don't like all communities, but if I need to go worship Allah, I'm not there for anybody else, right? I'm there because Allah loves us to be with the Muslims, okay? And if I'm going and my focus is upon Allah, I know that everything's going to be good. I don't need the people around me to be whatever. Look what the Prophet ﷺ was told. The messenger himself was commanded in Surah Al-Kaf, وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ Make yourself patient. If the messenger of Allah was told this, why? Because a lot of the early converts were not from his, the class of people that he dealt with on a daily basis. So it, it, they may have been a lack of relation at that point in time. Later on, of course, they were uh, a prophet and followers, sahaba. But at the early time, he may have not interacted with this type of person before. So that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, make yourself patient with them because they haven't had the tarbiyah that he had yet. And he hadn't yet had a chance to raise them and to transform them. So they may have had habits. 
that he was not familiar or comfortable with, right? But if the if Allah can tell the messenger himself, be patient. And with whom? Those who want to call upon Allah morning and evening. What is that? That's the Fajr crowd and the Isha crowd, right? For us, the way we interpret that, today it's those who pray Fajr and Isha in the mosque. Those are the righteous Muslims, right? Be patient with them. So the, uh, the, I, I think it goes to both ways. It is very possible that a community is frustrating to a person. It's very possible. Because it's not run well and you may differ with their uh, approach and their culture or whatever. But it's also very possible that we have to have some more ikhlas in the matter and stop being such consumers and having a mentality that you anyone owes you anything, number to and that they're like serving you right like i always meet people oh the community is not meeting uh my kids needs what are you like some kind of a prince we have to serve you go what do you need what do you want come to the masjid pray take a class and go home is, what is this right so secondly the prophet said the best of cities is the one with the most masjid well why is that why because at at some point you're going to jive with one of them right? It's going to serve everybody. Everyone's going to feel welcome. And by the way, you don't like these masajid. Who established these masajid? I'm telling you, it's a dentist or a doctor or an engineer who hardly spoke English, you know, made his way in the country. You have far more cultural capacity than they did, maybe more money. So why don't you go start your own masjid? They put in all the work. I could not stand the anti-unmasked phenomenon that went on about uh, a couple months, a couple years ago. I sorry, maybe it was around 2012, 2013, a bunch of complainers unmasked. I don't feel welcome in my community. What a bunch of whiners. Go open your own masjid if you're if you don't like it. You're going to go and complain about this engineer who didn't know A from Z. And he was able to establish a masjid just because he had to, not for your sake, okay? Just because he had to. And you're whining about that and, and complaining that he didn't do a good enough job, right? Go do it yourself. Open your own masjid. And there's nothing I hate more than a consumer attitude uh, that produces a bunch of whiners and complainers on something that nobody had to do this to begin with. So go do it yourself if you don't like it. You're right. So there, there is this consumer attitude, but but also there are people who who irritate you, right? You know, who who may have, you know, there are people also who who don't suffer fools gladly. I mean, this is also the human condition. There are some people who have a very high level of tolerance, and mm-hmm. certainly the Sunnah uh, tries to change that disposition. But it's it's not going to change everyone to the optimum level. There are some people who are going to have. Very little yep. tolerance, and and those those who do, and so people rub up, rub mm-hmm. against one another in 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 negative ways as when communities interact. And I've always found from discussing with uh, with Muslims, especially but the educated Muslim, and maybe that links to your previous point. There is a sense of superiority. I suppose it's that whining culture you talk about, where you know they uh, they mix with people who who they may find you know they, you know, they may. Uh, in a, in a very negative way, in, in a very uh, un-Islamic way, just dismiss them as being lower than them because they may may have lesser qualities or less education than them. You know that may be an un-Islamic, uh, pers- uh, you know, uh, uh, un-Islamic criteria. But there are also 
you know, those people who just naturally can't get on with others? Are you saying that they have to force themselves to to be more tolerant in their engagement yeah. with the community because mixing with a community is far more important than not having a community? Well, on one hand, yes, it's not the, the whole world can't be wrong, right? You, when you got a person who's hitting 50, 60, 70, 40, 50, 60 years old and doesn't have friends, it, chances are you're the problem, right? The whole world is not wrong. And at, at that point, you, if you don't realize that it must be you who's, a, who's the issue. Now, let's say, okay, I'm totally messed up. All right, then, then don't, don't bash the, everyone else, Right you know that you're the one who's, and I know people like that. I actually know somebody who says, I don't have friends, right? I'm just like that, right? But they don't blame anyone else. They don't go around whining about everyone else. So on one hand, you recognize your own, you're the issue. The second, on the, on the second hand, um, you do have to sort of adjust yourself to a degree because you can't abuse people. You cannot get along with people, but each time you don't get along with someone, you're probably hurting them, right? Now, for your own sake, that's not going to be really great for your akhirah. Secondly, you deprive yourself of so many hasanats, the ability to get so many you know, rewards. You know, whether one of the Sahaba said, I, I, I prefer to slaughter an animal and feed it to my companions than to spend all day in ibadah, right? Because there's so many benefits that come out of that meeting and that sadaqah. So now if you look at those who did start communities versus those who whine and complain about communities, if you started a community and you ran a community with a board, with donors, okay, with vendors, you know, the, whoever's fixing your air condition and the township that's uh, getting your paperwork, then, then you must have enough social skills that you're not always the problem, right? You must have enough social skills. So to me, the one who without the social skills is not going to be the one who's ran a community for 40 years. You know, this person has enough to attain the loyalty of a donor base and attendees and employees. So I'm not going to be, you know, it's going to be hard for me to believe that he's the one who's got the issue. Let's turn to an earlier point you made about young people, Muslim or non-Muslim, they now live in these very detached uh, communities, right? So they they have friends, but these friends are largely online, and and they do connect with these friends, but it's nowhere near the so the the nodes of connection that Islam establishes, where someone interacts at the local mosque and in the community on a very daily basis. Um, um, you, you said that uh, that should be secondary to to a person's life. Um, how much do you believe that social media and, and, and modern technology, in a way, I mean, one needs to respond to this technology in a far more assertive way to almost, you know, teach our communities that this is harmful and this will harm the human being and, it's, and, the, and the mind and also it would diminish what, what Islam wanted to establish in, in the practical realm. I mean, how much should we work against uh, these new technologies? I think new technologies must be subservient to greater principles. That's a, that's a simple rule. And I think new technologies have, in the absence of people who have aqidah and who have a law, a belief in a law, 
So where does that new technology serve? Their egos. I believe that whatever technology you give to people, it will be used and it will merely reflect their beliefs and their guidance or what they consider to be guidance, right? So if you give it to people who have no faith in anything, they'll just use it for business and sex. What else is there to use it for, right? What else is there in life than making money, eating food and having sex if you don't have a belief, right? Uh, Secondly, um, when you do have a belief, whatever the belief is, whether it's a political belief, whether you're, um, you know, save the earth, Christian or Muslim, you're going to use that technology just to amplify what you already believe and to help you practice what you already. So technology is, is it, and, and your belief will actually uh, control how much you use that technology. So it's my beliefs, like the law that Allah gave us is what makes me put some limits on my use of this technology, right? So also this goes for the inventors and the developers. They're only going to develop what their belief system allows them to develop. So if I was a Muslim, I would not develop an app that keeps people addicted to the app. I would not utilize those techniques, I mean, that would keep people addicted to my app because I don't believe that's good for them. And I don't believe Allah wants me to do that for them, right? So I wouldn't create an app that makes people just stay on it all the time because so from the inventor to the user it's our belief and our law and guidance that is in control and in the absence of any belief in law it's the ego it's the nafs and the whims the hawa the hawa is the passing fads that come and go and change all the time and the ego is that same old thing that human beings have the desire for power money temptation etc so you know that's that's why technology is just an amplifier of what we already believe. So, so in answer to that question, and actually, um, if I was to read between the lines and 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 look at many of, or, or study many of your answers so far, it seems that you, you your argument is that um, the need to live in a community and the importance of living in a community Islamically is is there. And Islam set this standard that all people should live in established communities, and and that helps you and helps you individually, but it helps your, and it enhances your practice of Islam. Um, now, uh, you talk about the nafs. Uh, I suppose we live in a in a system where the nafs is is now cherished. I mean, individualism places the human being and their self interest as the first purpose for goal. Of, of their lives, you know, they they are uh, they uh, they require the constant satisfaction of their egos and their and their personal selves, whether that's through consumerism or that's through just self adulation. You know, it's 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 all about the self. And how much do you believe that system? Let's call it, you know, we can call it liberalism. We call it individualism. How much is it has that system impacted? The, our the Muslim community and how we envisage or conceptualize communities. I think that I would say that the Jama'a is not just important for our deen anymore. I think it's important for our sanity. And I think that a lot of people are just, I would say, their sanity has been affected. Right? The idea that you can, you have people who haven't been taught basic manners because they haven't interacted with people enough. 
and the individual individualistic life of just being at home on the on the internet and scrolling through your phone it puts you in charge at all times of what you want to hear and what you want to say by saying i mean inputting into your device right there's no give and take there right there's no concept of taking so what you've re- what the result is and i think this is universal people see this all the time is people where uh you are the rudest person and the most insisting and demanding and judgmental person yet the moment someone else opens their mouth you sort of break down have like a mental breakdown the moment someone utters an alternate or opposing opinion you notice a complete breakdown of the person in front of you why my theory of it is that they spend all their time with the device where they're in absolute control of what they see and hear all the time. And so therefore, when another human being says, no, I don't think that's right. I totally disagree. I think that's ridiculous. What you're saying it's a complete breakdown. Right. And oftentimes these social media settings, they programmed for you to see like-minded opinions. Right. Now, sometimes that's good. Right. I don't want to see Iblisi opinions personally. Right. But what it does in other issues is it makes a person completely uh, unable to tolerate. Now, I'm, I'm not tolerant of all opinions, but I'm able to sit and look at you and watch you say your opinion without having to just distort myself and go crazy. I can sit there and watch and learn but, right? or, or just sit there and, and have a discussion. I don't have to accept your opinion, but I can discuss it with you and we can talk. Right. That's a learned habit. So with this new, the, with individual, with the individualized uh, living, where I'm in complete control at all times of what I hear and what I see and what I don't, what it, what it's disallowed is is disallowed a person to grow the ability to interact with somebody of a differing view, okay, without this this breakdown on one hand, a meltdown on one hand. And a complete dismissive, judgmental rudeness on another. On the other hand, like where there's no in between anymore. So that's what I see is destroyed people's ability to. And I think a lot of people have seen this with with you know with with certain people uh, that live that type of life that they they don't interact with anybody and they're solely on their devices. That type of person you can't deal with them. So I don't interact with them anymore. I just don't. If 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 they're uh, if I'm forced to be in the same room, I just try to keep it to a minimum because uh, I don't know how they're going to flip off the handle. They're fly off the handle, and the way they express themselves is so judgmental and rude that I just say, you know what, like, I'm not dealing with this. How important is the mosque to building communities? The masjid should not first be viewed as a community center. It should be be viewed as the house of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and only when we view it as the house of Allah that I'm going for my own soul can a community flourish out of that because Allah Ta'ala as he says in the Quran if you have given everything in the world you could not bring their hearts together but Allah brought their hearts together so what is our philosophy of friendship and brotherhood in Islam it is simply that when hearts are humbled to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he links them together in a special brotherly love relationship special brotherly relationship 
and a love that, that is between them. And that there's a hadith that mentions that nothing brings them together except Allah. They're not from the same tribe. They're not from the same anything. They're not doing business. They're not married. They're not family. Nothing except that we met in the sake of Allah. And there are people in the front lines of many masajid. They have no relation with each other. They don't even call each other. They don't uh, visit each other's homes. Yet they have a special bond between them. right? And I say those things because they, ha- they, they don't relate at all. But yet there's a special bond between them in that they are always meeting for the sake of Allah. And I could probably, uh, you know, mention in every masjid, there will be people who are like that. Every single masjid. There will be people who, that front row of mosques in the mosque, they have a special relationship, even if they don't even really know each other. So that love for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only comes when we're not looking for it. When we are looking to draw near to Allah. And then Allah takes that heart and connects it with another heart. And that's one of the secrets behind it. Dr. Charlie, tell me about your community. I mean, it seems I'm an, I'm an outsider looking in, but it seems that you've established, or at least your community is, is an established community. And, and there are uh, there are lots of activities for, for Muslim youth and for uh, the Muslim community generally. Before uh, we started recording, you were mentioned, you talked to me about your soup kitchen, which, you know, I think our listeners would, mm-hmm. would like to hear about. So, like, like paint a picture of, of the life an, a, an ordinary Muslim uh, would lead if they had, uh, if they lived in your, in your community in New Jersey. Okay, so, and uh, what I want to say is that anybody can replicate this. That's what I want to say. That's the first thing. So I don't want anyone to think that we're going to be talking about something that's so far, you know, out of reach. It's not. It's something anybody can replicate. And the the key ingredients are four, according to Imam al-Haddad, four types of people or four uh, uh, parts of emphasis. The first part is the, the fiqh. The number one thing is ilm. There must be an emphasis on ilm, whether that be like a person who is a scholar in residence or just like a group of people who care about knowledge. Number The second thing, there must be devotion. There must be ibad and dhikr. A lot of devotion, ibadah. Ibadah is what humbles the hearts and it increases iman and it brings people together. It brings their hearts low in humility so that Allah Ta'ala links them together. The... It, it, it removes a lot of maladies such as, you know, envy and hatred and all that. It fills the heart with the love of Allah and his messenger and the sweetness of dhikr. The third thing is the administrator. There must be good management. And good management is not that you just ma- maximize your resources. It's you also decrease civil strife within the group. You have to learn and have techniques to make sure everyone gets along. That's part of management of a community. I would much rather be in a community where the manager knows how to keep everyone, keep the peace and make everyone feel welcome and wanted than someone who maximizes resources, like a corporation. Fourthly, you need donors. The stuff needs money. But now when we talk about in practice, uh, I would point to the need to have three main nodes a node is something that repeats, whether it's once a month or once a week. And the first node is the scholarship node, right? the scholarly node. There must be learning happening at all times. 
and we must be agreeing on a minhaj of learning, right? So that's one of the things that really it's the most important thing. You cannot have, okay, today we're going to have a lesson on uh, from a, ex, a scholar from X Medhev. Tomorrow we're going to have a lesson from Y Medhev. Tomorrow we're going to have a lesson from Z Movement. Tomorrow we'll have a lesson from uh, A uh, or B Perspective. And it's just, you're, it's cacophonous. It's just, it's not going to work. We need a menhaj for our learning. Guest speakers, fine. You can have a guest, whatever. But uh, a menhaj for learning so that we're all on the same page on what we believe, on aqidah, in fiqh, and in the purification of the heart, which we want to call tazkiyah or tasawwuf. We need a perspective on this or, or, or a track. And we can grow and be together. Number two, you need ibadah. You have to come together for ibadah in some way, like whether it's it's uh, dhikr or dua or Quran. Those gatherings of ibadah where the hearts melt together. And a lot of people who cannot study, they don't have the intellectual capacity to study. That's the truth. It's not their thing. But they do have the capacity to worship Allah. And and for us, we, we have that as dhikr night, right? And hearts come together and they really melt together through the remembrance of Allah. And then the, the third thing is there must be a social setting, whether you combine that with, and the social setting is just food, whether people bring food and, and you eat together. If you have these three things and you stick to that consistently, great things will happen. And you do it in a way that is not burdensome, but you do it consistently. If you do this over the years, amazing things will happen will come out of that community. Right? Everyone will develop. And you just never know who Allah is going to bring to your community and, and who he's going to elevate from your community. People who are just regular kids and now they're leaders of the community as, as a, you know, time passes and years pass. People who are trying, they're trying to purify their hearts, they succeeded. And Allah gave them the tawfiq and now they are inspirations to everybody. Like they're, You can feel the vibes from them. Because the dhikr has worked and it's, it's settled and like marinated in their heart. And now they're beacons of light. So uh, those are the three nodes. And that's, that's, it's as simple as that. I would add to the social element of it, uh, you need physical space. You need a space where whether it's people can shoot some baskets or Shabab can shoot some baskets or a place for sitting. You need a physical space uh, that's not just the holy space or the sacred space of the mosque. So those are the nodes. I think if any group of people did that together for a long period of time, amazing things will happen. And and you have this outreach where you um, you've established this soup kitchen. Tell tell me about that and, and how that, that how that feeds into your your sort of conception of what a community should look like. A successful community is a successful Islamic community is one in which people are entering Islam regularly. Otherwise, where is your light? Right? Where you have no light. Right? If you have nur, if you have light in darkness, won't that lamp attract everybody? Okay? So if you have a lamp in the darkness, but it's not attracting anybody, then maybe you don't, maybe your, your light's not on. Maybe you don't have enough light. So to me, on one hand, it's a it's a scorecard. Are we even are we real in what we're doing? Is this accepted? Is this the right way? It's a scorecard. On the second hand, 
it's wajib. It's a fun kifaya to give da'wah where people don't have. The Prophet said, how could you sleep with your stomach full and your neighbor's stomach is empty? So that's food. Isn't iman greater than food? If you had to lose one thing for the next you know, rest of your life, would it be iman or would it be the food of your choice? It's going to be the food of your choice, right? So steaks and whatever food that you love, you're going to lose that or you lose your iman. Oh, I lose my food any day of the week over my iman because my iman is for eternity. So we have iman. We have to share that. We're lucky in our area. We have the, the good fortune from Allah Ta'ala that only literally a stone's throw away, 30 minutes, th- th- um, uh, three miles away, less than that, I think, is a very poor area. And that's the urban center of New Brunswick, where there are a lot of immigrants, migrants, I guess they call them these days, right? Um, and there are a lot of mesakin. And so they not only they don't have stuff, they don't have food the way we have it, and they don't have the deen that we have. So we have to share that. And that's and and, and when we started that, it was just completely um like a scrappy operation where we just bought up a bunch of hamburgers one night and walked around distributing them to the people. And then it developed from there to, we got into a cadence. We got donor people to, to cook food for us every week and package it, drop it off at the mosque. Then we take it from the mosque, drive the two miles. And we found a spot that was our spot. And that still is our spot. And we give out the food from there. And then eventually it was really like a dream to have a permanent spot. We never thought it would really ever happen, but we just kept hoping for it. And then Allah made it happen for us, right? That we have now a permanent spot. And now we can offer hot meals to locals and we can collect all the wealthy Muslims, unwanted stuff that is still good. It's like jackets that you don't use anymore, but it still works. Right? It's a good jacket, right? It's, it's clean. It may not be, it may be worn for a couple of years, but it, why would you throw it out, right? They take it. People will take it, right? Uh, vacuum. I mean, look at most most middle class Muslims. The stuff that they don't need anymore. When they replace something, they replace it at a level that it's still usable, but it's not nice looking anymore. Maybe creased up, out of out of fashion or whatever. It still works though. That stuff we can give it to people. I'm not happy that we're giving them that, but it's better than nothing. Right. I would rather give them something new, but we're not there yet. So we give it to them better than throwing in the garbage. So that's the idea. And uh, our first goal is to have one again, a node one evening a week. It's going to be Wednesday nights is going to be the dinner, a hot meal and a distribution of stuff. And we're just going to invite like two, three neighbors that we have a house there now. And it's going to be like a couple neighbors we're just going to invite them and it'll start as a very easy thing to do. Feed 12 people once a week. I mean, that's not hard. Right. And then it'll build from there, you know, as our donations come in and then our, uh, we get staff, right. That could cook eventually every single day. And they're going to hear the word of Allah because we're going to put a flat screen and we're going to play videos in English, Arabic, Spanish, so that they hear the adhan, they hear the dhikr of Allah, they hear our qasidas. We have beautiful songs, right? They'll hear our qasidas and, uh, in English, Spanish, Arabic. So we want them to hear the word of Allah. And, and that's, that's how I believe we're going to wash away a lot of our sins 
and Allah may save us and our children just because of this. I mean, may Allah make it uh, successful for you. Actually, one final question I have for you is um, the the role of sisters within and and within this community and how this community reaches out or caters for for women. And this be, has been a discussion in in the UK, an ongoing discussion actually about. Uh, how sisters feel that uh, they're omitted from most of the major community activities, especially when those activities are around the mosque. Um, If they are included, uh, they're included in very small rooms, normally away from from the centre. And and, and I'm sure there are very reasonable or very valid arguments as to why it's very difficult to cater for for sisters, especially uh, when space is is, uh, at a premium. Uh, but how important in your mind is, and, and practically in your community, how important is it to to, to have a, a sense of of reaching out or have a have a facilities, you know, within Islamic limits, where sisters uh, are, um, are are equally contribute or equally contribute to some of the work and the sessions that uh, you guys that you and and your brothers in the community um, commit to. Uh, well, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, said, the men, women are the other half of the men. In other words, they're twins. They're, they're, they're two halves. Men and women are, are each a half. They have the same needs that we have. There's no, I mean, uh, sort of weird to say it like that, right? But yes, there is a ruling in the Sharia that their Salah is better in their home than in the Masjid. That doesn't mean they don't need the Masjid for other reasons, Right? They may need the masjid for other reasons. They may need, that's where they're going to make Muslim friends. That's where they're going to get close to it. Practically speaking, where are they going to get close to Allah? Where are they going to memorize the Quran? You can't have, it's not practical, everything that happened in the home, right? And if I look at it psychologically, you might really get depressed. Just the way, I'm going to leave everything, is that just what my eyeballs see? You're going to get depressed. You need to go to the masjid, right? You need to be close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I'm going to use that, you know, uh, uh, you know, I test and that what I understand when I have now some daughters, right? I need them to go to Hif's class, go to the masjid, worship Allah in the mosque, recite the Quran there, see the other worshipers, see the other women, right? You see the older women, get gay, you get a sense of norms now. So to me, that's very important. So uh, on the another a- angle from it, things would not happen in most mosques if it were not you know, for, for women, I mean, who runs half the operations of the Islamic schools and the masajid, it's mostly going to be the women, right? So uh, practically speaking, there is a great role for, for everybody to play or to, to, to fulfill in these things. And, and let's also look at alternatives. You say you don't want them in the masajid because of a ruling, right? So then what's the alternative? Where are they? You think they're at home sitting in the room and they're going to be more productive there. You don't think there's going to be just the, the, the attraction to just hang. I'm saying for anybody, when we were in COVID, what were we doing? There's not going to be a lot of time where you're just doing something beneficial. You're going to get bored. It's going to look at your, open your computer. You're going to turn on your TV. You're going to eat anybody with human nature. So how are they any different? So I would say that, um, it's as critic. It's it's extremely important since these are the ones who do most of the raising of children, right? So, 
in this respect. And the needs are the same. So I, uh, definitely the way we operate, uh, we highly encourage you know, that type of involvement without mixing, without uh, chit-chatting. We don't allow in our organization, if you have to send a message, you have to CC somebody else. There's got to be a third person. There's no direct message person to person in Safina Society, for example. Right. I think it's understood in most massage administrations. That's how it should be. Uh, and there's we don't have mixed gatherings. Sometimes the high school class, for example, and the tweens classes, they're um, probably close together in one halakha, which I know that uh, is not the ideal. Yeah, but just for the logistically, it's just that's how it happens. So but we do believe and preach in separation of genders. With space is enough, right? With a wall is possible, but with space is also enough in the Maliki school, with space. Like there's a distance. That's what our sheikh told us in uh, Maliki fiqh. A space is enough, right? So that's how we operate. And we believe in the rules of hijab and clothes, that the men's and women's clothes should not be tight or form-fitting, and we should cover our aura, our aura, and we are able to preach the obligation of hijab, whether it's just like, oh, what are you telling women what to do? I'm not telling which women to do. I'm telling you what the Quran says, right? So we believe that, okay? And so uh, with those parameters, I think that's the right balance. And Allah knows best. Sheikh Shadi al-Masri, it's uh, been a pleasure once again to have you on this podcast. Jazakallah khair for your time today. My pleasure. Jazakallah khair. As always, I would like to take this opportunity to extend my thanks to my team, without whom I could not have made this project work. Riaz Hassan, Musab Muhammad, Reem Walid, Adil Alam, Yusra Zainuddin, Ahmed Sirag, Ahaz Atif and Umar Abdussalam. These brothers and sisters have joined the project from around the world and give up their valuable time. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them for their sincerity. Please keep them in your du'as. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.